This is Nobody Likes Casey McLean, with your host, the one and only person who thinks this podcast should exist, Casey McLean. Hello from what feels like the 750th week of quarantine. This is Casey McLean. I hope you guys had a good fourth. I had a decent fourth. Uh, These kinds of holidays, these drinking holidays, these party holidays, they're like the most affected by this COVID situation, right? Because, I mean, I know like the city I live in, every year they have uh, over the water like a big fireworks display canceled this year. They called it a postponed, by the way. How do you postpone a holiday that's tied to a specific date, like on December 4th, are we going to, we're going to, uh, roll around or what is it? I guess like six months later would be what I had a good conversation with a friend of mine today about how we would hate fireworks a lot. Less. This is such a great point that he made, uh, us olds, us people who are sick, who have lost the pageantry of the 4th of July has been lost on us. We're done with it. Uh, we wouldn't hate it so much if the 4th of July celebration occurred in January for a variety of reasons. One is you can start lighting fireworks off at like three 30 in the afternoon. It would already be dark. Second, you wouldn't be lighting them off, you know, in the middle of the driest season of the year at the, the beginning of the driest season of the year. Uh, so, People, the, the biggest complaints people have, people would um, not be woken up at two in the morning by your stupid fireworks and they wouldn't be, uh, you wouldn't run as big of a risk of fires, right? Like that's, that seems like a win all the way around. Can we do like we did with Jesus's birthday and just pretend like it happened January 4th instead of uh, July 4th? February 4th, I don't care, March 4th, probably not, February 4th, middle of, uh, or beginning of Black History Month, maybe not the right climate to be suggesting we move America's Independence Day to February, Casey. Uh, I do try to be empathetic to these firework people, because I've been stupid too. (laughs) I was once a stupid kid who lit off a lot of fireworks. I grew up on an Indian reservation and, uh, one of my best friends in high school, um, his dad ran a fireworks stand, uh, several towns over and I, we would go, we used to get a great deal from, uh, from that fireworks stand. We'd still spend like 150 bucks though. We were like in our early twenties, late teens and and 150 bucks was a lot of money, but we'd get like $700 worth of fireworks. And also the shit that was the under the counter shit, we would get some of that too. And, uh, sometimes I wonder why people put so much trust in us as kids. Like, do you guys remember when you were kids? Maybe you don't. I used to stand outside of a grocery store and ask just every single person that walked in if they would buy me beer um, with my friends. And it happened, like, easily. 
Every time. I bet you we never sat outside of a store for an hour waiting for someone to buy us beer. And then now that I'm 21 plus, I just cannot imagine ever trusting a minor with my, like, with, I guess, like, my future incarceration. Also, it was so much easier to buy weed back then. And now that's probably harder to buy for kids, too. That's why I think a lot of kids my age smoked weed instead of drank a lot is because the weed weed you just bought from the guy that sold weed at your school, alcohol, you needed a 21-year-old adult. And I think about this guy, who I'm not going to say his name for legal reasons, but he would sell us like Class B mortars, like professional quality mortars, M80s, M1000s. We used to really get the hookup. He'd sell us... So many sparklers that he knew he had to know what was coming. I remember one year uh, I lived in Auburn, Washington. And again, I, I think on an Indian reservation, different Indian reservation. And the rule in Auburn, the slogan was, if it goes up or blows up, it's illegal in Auburn, which is like all the good fireworks, right? Nobody's excited over a snake or a sparkler. But you could take sparklers. I hope I'm not writing like the uh, the new anarchist cookbook here. But you could take sparklers and duct tape them together. And you would create like enough uh, combustion force that when they all lit at one time, it would explode. And I remember the police. Uh, my friend and I were blowing up fireworks in this cul-de-sac that I lived on. And the whole neighborhood was doing it, and we had the best fireworks uh, because we were the stupidest and youngest and the least responsible with our money in the neighborhood. And uh, the police rolled up as my friend was walking out the door, my friend Matt walking out the front door of my house with this enormous, like the the width of a five-gallon bucket of sparklers taped together, like would have been, had it gone off uh, an insane explosion, and I'm like, Matt, get the fuck, get the fuck in the house, get the fuck in the house, Matt, come on. And uh, he got in the house, police did nothing. And then sometime later, hour passed, we took it into a, an open field and tried to blow something up and uh, it did not blow up, which that's scarier, by the way, because you don't know what to do with that firework now because you don't want to pick it up because who knows what's smoldering underneath there. And the consequences are like you losing your arm. Or your fingers, Jason Pierre Paul style, losing your fingers. I, uh, the last year I bought fireworks had to be like 2012 that I bought any fireworks. No, probably 2011. Cause I remember I, uh, the first year, so my wife and I started dating in 2010. <clears throat> I almost uh I almost fucked it up in 2010, ladies and gentlemen. We we started dating. We'd known each other for 2 years. We started dating June 18th, 2010. That was our uh that was our official date. Our first date was May 22nd, 2010. And she invited me to her family's 4th of July celebration. And I being packed with machismo and stupidity said, I think it's a little fast. 
for me to come to your family's 4th of July celebration. So I went to my friend's house. We uh, we had a bonfire going. This is the, the bonfire comes in handy, by the way. Bonfire going, lighting off fireworks, drinking beer, smoking cigarettes. And my wife and I, she's obviously not my wife at the time, were texting the entire time. My friends are very annoyed. And I decide, probably too many beers, too late in the night deep, that I'm going to drive 20 miles. Not like, I mean, I hadn't had like 10 beers, but I'd had like enough beers that I probably, it was pushing it to be on the road. And then I go to their house and thank Christ for that bonfire because I'd been smoking cigarettes all day too, thinking I wasn't going to be seeing my wife's, uh, my then not even girlfriend yet, or no, barely my girlfriend yet. Uh, her family and I had the cover of bonfire to cover up the cigarette smoke smell and then the the reason it was too fat because it she, it was 30 miles from home and a spend the night situation with her parents at her parents uh, and that's a lot. That's a lot to take on as a as a brand new boyfriend. So um I don't know why I brought that up. I also watched uh Hamilton. I've been a big Hamilton fan. I am uh maybe the least expected Lynn Manuel Miranda head in the world. Uh that that is to say that I've heard him on one other thing, really enjoyed it was dying to hear the Hamilton soundtrack. I I have never seen it live, but when the soundtrack came out, I had a pirated version of it. I wore that out when uh when it came out on iTunes and all that stuff, wore it out again. I love the I love Hamilton. And it came out on video by the way on Disney Plus. I think I'm uh silently burping into the mic. I hope that you're not hearing this. Um this is what comes from being fat and eating unhealthy is just horrific gas with the guest today, Megan Gailey. I burped into the mic. I think I acknowledged it once and didn't acknowledge it three times. And then she burped into the mic once. I don't know if that'll make it to make it past the cutting room floor, but <clears throat> Hamilton's great by the way. But what I realized watching Hamilton is how fucking embarrassing it has to be to rehearse Hamilton to an empty room. Because I think of how embarrassing comedy is in a room where there's not a large audience. And I don't have to, like, sell a rap, a hip-hop depiction. Because it's great, by the way. I'm not taking anything away from it. Hamilton is amazing. And it's a big swing. That's the other thing. It's a hip-hop depiction of our founding fathers. <laughs> and it's not corny. I mean, maybe some people would think it's corny. I'm probably not the one... I'm not the person who gets to decide what hip-hop depictions are corny, I suppose. But I don't find it corny. I don't find it cringy or any of the stuff that would make uh, hip-hop history bad. But I just think of how stupid it's got to be feel. It's got to feel to be that serious about this in real life. And th that's the like the escape hatch of comedy that I like. Is that you can just go, you can just uh, 
act like you're not taking it that seriously. But you can't do that. You can't half-ass Hamilton. You can't half-ass any musical. Today's guest is Megan Gailey. I hope you enjoy her. Uh, we talked a lot. Again, I'm not sure what's going to end up edited and what's going to end up in the podcast. If you'd like to hear the full-length interview, it's an hour long. Go to patreon.com slash the Casey McLean. Uh, tell your friends about this podcast. Go to nobodylikescaseymcclain.com. I think it'll just redirect you to my website if I've done everything correctly. Uh, thank you for listening to the podcast. I hope you enjoy Megan Gailey after a word from our sponsors. Hey, this is the Nobody Likes Casey McLean podcast. Please check out my stand-up dates at thecaseymcclain.com. Also, follow me on all social media at thecaseymcclain. Check out stand-up clips and videos of mine at youtube.com slash McLean. This podcast is brought to you by Anchor. Anchor is where I host this podcast. It's where the file sits. It's also a great place if you want to start a podcast where you can record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. When you're hosting on Anchor, you can distribute your podcast to all the listening platforms, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. Whatever you're listening to this podcast on, you can get your podcast to that platform very easily. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. And best of all, Anchor is totally free. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Megan Gailey has been on Comedy Central, the NFL's online platform The Checkdown. She has a podcast with her husband called The Greatest, and an album that you should buy, if you have any decency at all called My Dad Paid For This. Follow her on Twitter and Instagram at Megan Gailey. Listen to the full-length interview and watch the video of this interview at patreon.com slash the KC McLean. Hey, so before we start this interview, I wanted to play a track from Megan Gailey's album. My dad paid for this. I reference it multiple times in the interview. Uh... For sure, multiple times if you go on the Patreon. I think multiple times, though, just on this. It's a track from her album called Sporty Spice, and I reference it as the Outback Bowl joke. It's one of the funniest things I've ever heard someone stay on stage, and uh, I think that you'll enjoy it, but I want to play the track for you, and I, I got permission from Megan to play this track on the podcast. So I hope you enjoy it, and then enjoy the rest of the podcast. I don't hate sports. I'm a sporty spice, I promise. <laughs> I do. I Yeah, I was a sports broadcasting major. I was sports broadcasting and theater, because I was like, ooh, <laughs> how can I be the most worthless person alive? <laughs> Ta-da! <laughs> That's like from the theater part. Uh, <laughs> theater's an embarrassing major. Obviously, any theater majors here tonight? <laughs> No, you had to pay to get in. Uh, you can't, like, do a monologue for a ticket. Uh, sports broadcasting is especially embarrassing. It's basically going up to my parents and being like, can I have $80,000 to try and fuck a running back? And they're like, okay. <laughs> it worked. Uh, 
Yeah, we weren't that good when I was there. I mean, I, I'm not like NFL hot, but I've definitely got like Outback Bowl pussy. Uh, okay, some of that laughter felt hurtful. Uh, it's tough to, to suck out skills from those two majors. Well, let me start with this. I uh, remember so many things about the weekend you and I worked together. And the uh, part of the reason is it was a very fun weekend, but every time we worked together in, at Spokane Comedy Club, and every time I go there, something monumental is happening in my life. Uh, mm -hmm. So I, I, the first time I worked there, it was uh, hosting for Ron Funches, and my wife and I had just started trying to have a baby. Not that's a little uh, a little bit of uh, inside the bedroom information, but that's okay. Uh, People know. Yeah, that's true. They do know people have to have sex to have a baby. And uh, we also went home and put in our our first offer on a house and got rejected. Wow. Uh, we got outbid. We overbid. Uh, do you guys own or rent? We rent. I'd but we're starting to look. We're like, I'm one of these people that's like, wow, maybe the economy will be so bad that I will finally be able to afford a house. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, it's funny because you think about that in terms of like, you're like, oh yeah, I hope that the housing market goes down. I've thought that my whole life until now when we now yeah. own a house. Uh, yeah, you're like, fuck, 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 So we put in an offer. We overbid the asking price by $13,000 and got outbid by $50,000 on this house. It's just insane. The whole process What's is happening in, in Washington State. Yeah. Well, Was Washington's like got a decent, uh, you know, there's like decent housing market here. Seattle's pretty expensive. Where I live is an Oh, yeah. Expensive. Seattle's very, very expensive. I have heard that. Yeah. Uh, I just think we always, you know, I lived in New York before this and now live in L.A. And so, and my brother is a realtor in Washington, D.C., and I've lived in Chicago. You know, I lived in Chicago before that. So it's like we are all kind of programmed to be like, oh, we have it the worst. Mm -hmm. And it's like, yes, things are obviously more expensive here, but there are still bidding wars that happen in in other parts of the country. And it's yeah. it's the and they say that's actually not going to necessarily decrease because supply is down but demand so far is not so that actually has a chance of like going up yeah and on and on this economics podcast i've always said that uh yeah because i think the other thing that's going to happen is that work is decentralized right like we don't need new york as much as we used to so uh in inside the city i think value will go down but outside mm -hmm. the city there might be actually more demand and less inventory because you don't need to like in Seattle, you don't have to work in downtown Seattle anymore uh, yeah. to have a job. So my sister lives uh, in a suburb of Chicago. She lives in uh, like near Naperville. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she Naperville pays... is um, big. That's where the improv is in Chicago. Well, it's in Schaumburg, but. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and she, she actually lives like very close to CG's comedy club, which just opened within like a last couple of years and it's like a level of comedy club that I might be able to headline relatively soon. It's called CG's comedy club. Yeah, I think so. Damn. I'm out of the loop. Y'all, they used to have to run every Chicago comedy decision by <laughs> me or somebody I at least knew. And now we've got 
whole clubs. I love when I like the fir- the first club that I ever did an open mic at has now closed. Oh, and wow. I love when I outlast a business in comedy. <laughs> I will say that a lot of people's first, you know, so a comedy club is slightly different, but a really bad sign for a business is when they start a comedy open mic. Yeah. Um, well, when all of the like um, the requirements for opening businesses here in in LA and probably like California at large, they've been, they've like specifically keep saying like no comedy, no comedy open mics, no comedy shows. <laughs> like we they like it, and it feels like okay, yeah, obviously laughing and putting droplets of spittle out into the air are bad, but it, it, there is this like twisting of the knife that it does feel like maybe the mayor of LA really also just hates comedians because <laughs> it's so specific. Uh, so when you and I worked together, I, I think it was, we got my wife and I got the keys to our yeah. house now. I do remember this. Yeah. And it was very exciting. Uh, so the first time we went out, she couldn't drink because uh, she, we were like, you know, thought she might be pregnant or whatever. She wasn't. Um, and then the next time I worked there, it was like the week I was finally like we were far enough along into her pregnancy that I could start telling jokes about. So I had written like five minutes of jokes, but I wasn't allowed to tell them. I thought you were going to say she was far enough along in her pregnancy that she could drink um, <laughs> now. So, you know, she it's that those first few months they tell you not to. And then she's back on it. Yeah. Once the baby's um, old enough, she can handle, you know, whatever her portion of a couple glasses God. of wine are. I hadn't even thought about, so how long did you wait? 12 weeks? Like the. I think to tell our families, we waited like 10 weeks. And then to be like public about it, I think it was 13 or 14 weeks. Damn. That takes a lot of. Because, like, you always hear, like, don't tell people at, until 12 weeks because, you know. And I've had friends that I spend enough time with that I could you can just tell and it's at like two weeks, but they're mm-hmm. not drinking and it's people you drink with usually. Yeah. And so you're like, okay, something is up. Um, but I'm like, yeah, three months is a long time to keep like a giant secret. Yeah. Well, I, I feel like I'm, I'm getting my IUD taken out in a month and I'm already telling people that like <laughs> that. All I'm saying is like, I'm getting ready for my husband to be able to loosely come in me. Um, and like my my mom and dad know what day I'm getting my IUD taken out. And it's like, they don't need to know oh, that, but so I just like, can't, can't control myself. Yeah. I would say that I, the one I did let it slip to a coworker at my day job because we had like a holiday party and my wife wasn't mm-hmm. drinking. And his wife, his wife was like, just let her have one beer. I was like, she's the designated driver, which wasn't true by the way, but I'm yeah. like, she's a designated driver. She can't drink. And she's like, just let her have one beer. What are you trying to control her for? And I'm like, okay, I think you can understand what's going on here. Could you please use a little bit of tact? Yeah, when someone is, like, that adamantly not drinking, you just kind of – well, and, like, there's there's tricks now, too. I know friends that have, like, held empty beer bottles or, like, gotten something that looks like it's a vodka soda. What little trickeries? Can't these – can't bitches just not be drinking yeah. without so many questions? Like, I'm not a good liar. I'm not a good secret keeper. Like, it's not going to be. I'm going to be one day pregnant, like, taking photos. <laughs> You're going to be documenting <laughs> your bump on Instagram yeah. when there's no bump. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, and then, uh, you know, so that was actually my first weekend featuring there. 
uh, when you and I worked together. And I remember, I believe this was a new joke at the time, but you had a joke, the Outback Bowl joke. Do you? Oh, yeah. I think that was like brand. I don't think it was new at the time. I think I just was maybe it like I it almost was a joke that was like in the act and then I forgot about it and then mm. came back. So it was it was 2.0 because I remember thinking like uh, and I, I this is I hope this doesn't come off sounding insulting, but I don't think that the crowd appreciated it there like they should. Uh, I think it's a hilarious joke and you can. uh you can uh, find the joke, by the way. I, I listened to it today to make sure it was uh, actually on your album and not remembering it from yeah. performing with you. But it was uh, it's called uh, Sporty Spice is the name of the track. Sporty Spice. And yes. Yeah. It's on your album. My dad paid for this. Mm hmm. Which is and uh, Sporty Spice. There, Sporty Spice was a name of a track because I could not name like. I ended up, have you done an album? I have not, no. This was my first one, so I didn't know, you know, but I love the names of my jokes. Mm -hmm. Like, even just like, and I love the names of anybody jokes. I, jokes. I just love seeing what people, like what a 10-minute story gets boiled down to in their book. Yeah. And that it was actually, it was called like NFL in it, but since I had worked for the NFL. Oh, yeah. I I mean, when I started working at the NFL, they basically like handed me a sheet of paper and were like, we need you to delete these tweets. Um, and then I just then I kind of had an issue when I was working there when my half hour came out and I had and I had domestic violence jokes that did not paint the NFL in a positive light, obviously. <laughs> and so I, I had to like rename things and pretend that it wasn't called certain things so i mm. couldn't get like caught after being there can i uh you don't work for the nfl anymore i do not know okay well i think it's safe to say that the nfl's domestic violence problem is not megan gailey's fault that's really like that's why when they were so mad at me i was like i feel like you guys are like kind of mad at the wrong person here <laughs> it seems like maybe this should be a time of learning and reflecting um yeah but yeah, I, I, you know, as this debate about what it's like being a female comedian has sort of been reinvigorated in the last weeks, I did come to a sad realization that I felt more protected and, um, yeah, I guess I just, I felt more protected as a female employee of the NFL than I have probably ever felt as a female comedian. Well, I mean, I would say that, like, male comedians are not natural protectors probably yeah. uh and not even you know no, not even to say of that. their ego for sure yeah. but of anything <laughs> outside of themselves perhaps except for you my husband you know the the, the cases of i mean like. i do think there is like a thing like i was at a uh when comedy still existed i did i like featured in this kind of alti a uh, safe space room around here and there was like i don't know what it is about those places but they have more problems than any comedy club ever with like people just walking onto the stage and taking the microphone away from somebody and i remember it's a very small room like very close mm -hmm. together and a guy did that and i stood up just like out of instinct as a hero and uh I, I then, like, the, you know, it kind of, like, figured itself out before I had to, but I looked around to see, like, who else was even 
like thinking about standing up and there was like me and one other guy that I happened to be friends with and uh, the host was a woman and I was like how how is like this is not worse than a com or this is not better than a comedy club in terms of like her being protected right right it's I bad. mean that's uh yeah it's really interesting and I I think I also had sort of uh, I came up in Chicago in Chicago there were men that I did stand up with who all they wanted to do was fight. Mm -hmm. So like if someone did one minuscule thing, they would fight them. So it was like, Oh yeah, these guys got our backs. But then we also like ran around with a registered sex offender. Mm -hmm. So it was this very, um, and then when I got to New York, it was like, Oh, these men in Brooklyn, they're not down to fight. Like mm -hmm. they, they, they talk the talk and they are supportive of women. But like these bros in Chicago, just because they were like blood hungry, they actually like physically wanted to defend us more than, than woker versions of them in Brooklyn. But I had a guy, I didn't even remember this. This is what's so fun. You just fully forget crazy things that happen. A guy jumped on a table and whipped his dick out um, at a show in Brooklyn. And and I can't remember. This is bad. I wish I could remember. Some A, a male comedian did, like, tackle him. And they did get him out of there. But it was someone I even remember at the time being like, whoa, that's who helped me? Like, oh, boy, <laughs> we're in trouble. <laughs> yeah, I think it uh, – I mean, I think, like, the the bro dudes, and I'm not excluding myself from that group, it's like uh, we're kind of like those, uh, those like, safe or uh, emergency kits in the back of your car. Like, we take up a little more space, but we're mm – -hmm. When when you need them, you're really happy they're there, right? Yeah. Like, uh, and you really hope you can point them in the right direction to what the problem is. Right. Like, if you can if you can channel a bro's anger at the correct person, you're great. But if they get you know they get lost, they beef jerky or pussy or something <laughs> distracts them, they're off course, and then and then you are really fucked. I actually remember, again, I remember everything from this weekend because so much was going on in my life, but uh, we were at the bar next to the comedy club, and you uh, left with two gay men. Yeah. And I didn't know they were gay guys, and I was like, are, are you okay? <laughs> like, is this, uh, like, I was, like, a little bit worried for a second, and then, I mean, you know, you're, you're an adult, uh, and I'd have no reason. I would, that is, like... Even sometimes people will be like, oh, do you go out? I'm like, I would never go out with someone. Like, I'll go out with, yeah, whoever else is on the show, wait, waiters, waitresses, like people that work at the club. To me, that does feel sort of like, oh, I could trace it back to who it was if, it, if something bad happens. But to, like, leave with random people at the show is – I used to do that in my past for sure just because I love to fucking party for free. Um, <laughs> but now I, like, don't do that. And then I was like, yeah, I'm going to go with these two gay men because I feel like I'll be fine. And they took me to a gay bar. And and there were even – yeah, there were men there acting crazy, and those gay men stood up to them. Oh, funny. <laughs> like, my uh, so it's my family's actually a lot of my family is from Spokane and I've been to what I believe is probably the only gay bar in uh, Spokane, and uh, did it have this is my if this is how this is my identifier did it have like close ups of Tom Selleck's junk on the wall Do you remember that much Yeah yeah and there were like lots of um you know there's really fun music videos and then there was drag. 
And oh yeah, that's why um, I went was for a drag show. Yeah, the Spokane drag. Uh, yeah, happy I got to see it. You know, yeah. <laughs> it's. Uh, I love to see drag from all different parts of the country. <laughs> was it like the minor leagues of drag? Um, to some extent, yeah. I mean, and I've seen Indianapolis drag. I've seen and Indianapolis drag is pretty good. I've seen like Northern Indiana drag. Like it was, it was good, but it's it was definitely not L.A. drag. Oh, you know what? Do you, you've worked uh, the helium in Indianapolis, right? Yeah. Uh, the wait or the bartender there is a woman. I think she's involved in drag somehow. Maybe burlesque. Um. I I believe that. I could imagine Indianapolis has like a thriving burlesque community because I almost think of like burlesque body types as like the perfect Indiana body type. Um, And I'm not even saying like just corn fed um, and like in a beautiful way. I hope I'm I'm saying this with like kindness, not with uh, fuck these gals, but like. You know, a nice milky white breast. You're a Indianapolis or Indiana native, at least, right? So you're, yeah. you're speaking of your own people when you say this. Oh, yes. These are my people. These are my people. Sometimes people are confused. I've definitely had someone in Indiana be like, where are you from? And it's like, <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> Here, but we had different paths. Um, it's funny. I was in a, I took an Uber and I got in and I was like, he was like, you know, the guy, how, how, do, you, how do you like Indiana? Like a very southern guy. And I was like, uh, oh, it's fine. You know what I like about Indianapolis is it's a city that's actually diverse from what I could tell by the audience. Like a lot of places, when they say they're diverse, what they mean is there's like a neighborhood where all of the minorities live. And then yeah, and I, Indiana, yeah. like, I mean, I was there opening for Ismo and uh, Ismo had a diverse crowd. So Indiana, Indianapolis has to be diverse. And then he, like, launched into a thing about how Trump is doing a great job running the country as a no, business. No. And I was like, oh, my God. Like, I don't know how we even yeah. got here. So that's that's what you'll get there. You'll you'll have an instance of, like, oh, wow, good. This place seems like they've got some positive things going on. And then you'll talk to one person and be like, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I take it back. I take it back. So you and I think when you were at Tacoma, you had just gotten the job uh, working for the NFL. Probably, yeah, I think so. Yeah, uh, the, and again, I'm, I'm I remember so much about this weekend because you said that your husband, because your husband at the time was not doing comedy. No. And, and then you said when he came to Tacoma, you were going to make him do guest spots. Yeah. And then now he's doing comedy again, right? Yes, I've uh, I have. <laughs> Like, brought the monster back from the dead. Um, yeah, well, no, he started at 16. And I, what, t- what, what time? What age did you start at? Uh, I was 28. Oh, okay, yeah. So I started at 23. And my husband started at 16. And then I know some other people like this. They start very, very young. Mm-hmm. And they either die, unfortunately, or they burn out. Or they just sort of, like, age out of that being something that like, I don't like anything that I liked when I was 16, except right. for like share and my two friends. Um, and so it just, you naturally go out of it. And so he kind of, he burnt out. He became very um, like dis disenfranchised. Is that the, he, he started to just look at 
the way Hollywood was and be like, Ugh. like and, resentful? but that's because he had already been in it for like 12 years. Mm. And at 28, I'd only been in it for five years. So I still was like young and hungry and had fun. Um, but yeah, he quit because he started getting sports jobs that were just as creative and fun mm-hmm. and paid a lot better. And then when we started dating, he was coming to so many shows that he was like, well, if I have to be at stand-up shows all the time, I might as well be doing it again. Yeah. Um, which, you know, which obviously reeks of the passion you'd like for someone to have for their <laughs> art form. And then, and then he just started running a show at a Filipino restaurant uh, he's Filipino. We lived in a very, very Filipino neighborhood, and it really, like, he liked it again. It started to be fun and enjoyable, and he got to see people, and and the pressure felt a lot less, too, because it was like, I have these other jobs that pay me and fulfill me, mm-hmm. so now I'm doing it, like, purely just for fun. That's cool. Yeah, that's. I, I think that's another thing. I'm going to – I just realized something else uh, coincidental about that is – uh, I was a writer at Bleacher Report at the very beginning of Bleacher Report. If you remember, do you remember this? Yes. And he has like uh, yes, he's I, n- he was paid by Bleacher Report. I was not paid by Bleacher Report. I was uh, back when it was like uh, citizen journalism. I think is what they call yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah. So that's Can you actually like ask for money now. Can you be like, hey, you guys <laughs> now? Well, they're struggling. Well, I don't know if they're struggling. I. I cannot speak to Bleacher Report's finances, but um, well, we already I dealt with they... the housing market, so I think that the sports media market. I feel like you could email them and be like, "I'd like some back wages, please." That would be nice. I uh, I don't know that they were paying the wrong price for the work they were getting from me necessarily. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Free felt like the going rate. Yeah. I, I mean, I was like a decent sports writer. I was never, I had these illusions of being a sports reporter at one point. Me uh, too. Yeah, I know. This is a, this is a, and I, I think that reporting would have been horrible. Um, But you, you got the job that's like the dream job when you think about the stuff. Like, cause you were like commenting on what was going yeah. on in the NFL as opposed to like yeah. reporting seems miserable. Yeah. You know, I like interned, um, at, a at the, uh, a station in Chicago in the sports station mm-hmm. or in the sports department and really loved it and was like, yes, this, cause I was a, I wanted to be a sports caster. I wanted to be like a sideline gal. And so I worked in it and look, I mean, I, I was going in every single locker room. I got to like the first game that Carrie Wood is back. You see my little hand in there. Like it was so cool for this 20 year old girl. And then at the end of it, they were like, you should not do this. Um, and Why? I was like, I love it so much. And they were like, it just it's not going to fulfill you. This is not like you seem like a funny kind of wacky gal. And this is not a place where you get to be funny or wacky. It really is very much based on looks and, and reciting kind of facts. And and I'm not saying if you're hot and can memorize things, you're going to do it. You obviously like, you got to be able to put two and two together and have, like a certain swagger about you that allows you to go up and talk to these mega, mega famous people and mm-hmm. not be afraid or intimidated, which was something I actually did not have. So it does take a skill set, but it was a skill set that was not mine. And then 
it's funny because like sometimes my dad not not in the last few years but he would be like you know you could always still be a sports reporter and i'm like no but i i cut the line like i got that job at the nfl because i was a comedian yeah who liked sports and that meant i got to bypass so many other things i didn't have to do the bullshit of like being my own producer camera person in some c-list market because i did all of that bad stuff in stand-up yeah, I think that's like the the thing that's I think cool about what you did specifically is that you were there to not like read off a teleprompter, right? Like to, you were supposed to uh drive the content. Yeah. Which is different than the job of a sports reporter. Right. And and what is so kind of was sad to realize as a young girl was oh these women are not part of the conversation at least mm -hmm. this is you know a decade ago they're not part of the conversation they're just facilitating the conversation and you still see that a lot like it'll be these shows um countdown shows even the daily shows and they there are men a panel of men and, and sometimes a woman, but then the host is a woman and she's just throwing the questions. Mm -hmm. And, and is that a cool job? For sure. It's cool to work anywhere. That is your dream. Is that the job that I wanted to do? Fuck no. There was no way I was just going right. to ask men questions and then not say anything. Yeah. I think, I think when you see like, and I, maybe this is like uh even sexist to notice this distinctly, but like, you see Doris Burke, the work that Doris Burke does, and you're like, this lady should be fucking Larry King. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. she is one of the best, like, live post-game interviews better than planned studio interviews. Uh, mm -hmm. And, yeah, she's, like, amazing at that. And that's, like, the very pinnacle of what that job is. Yeah. <clears throat> they they I almost said they let her. She now is an in-game commentator. You mm -hmm. know, like she does uh she is with the Mark Jacksons and the Reggie Millers and and it, it it's it's so wild too because there's so many commentators who did not play mm -hmm. and then it's like well so it has always felt like oh we're not letting women be color commentators or be a part of in-game reporting because they didn't play and it's like no, please, mark albert didn't play like right. that that's not the reality like you don't have to have played to be an expert on the game in a reporting aspect right yeah i mean i think there's a little bit of that like jessica mendoza although i think she just got fired from uh or may, i don't know fired is the right word but i don't think she's going to be on uh baseball broadcasts at least for a little while um yeah that's true that's a good point um so i think though like you were oh here's another i have another thing that i remember from i sorry to point my finger at you even through zoom that's got to be annoying uh oh i don't i like it uh andrew luck's first game back when you came to spokane i'm sorry to bring up the uh may he rest in peace andrew yeah. luck's career yeah, because I've been I've always loved remember, Andrew Luck, and uh, he was... I remember watching um, that game. It was preseason. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember watching that game in the hotel room, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. or like you know turning it on. Oh yeah, you know he's 
he's gone. Um, and it's interesting. I actually saw his name being brought back up last week because Victor Oladipo has opted out and is not going to play in the NBA restart in the bubble. And so you see hillbillies in Indiana be like, you're quitting on your team. And it's like, you don't fuck you. Ha- you don't get to decide what this man does with his body. Yeah. Like no one is mad at him. He is entering into a giant contract year. Hasn't been playing. Like there's players that are not injured that are not going. And so then you saw people regurgitating this. Andrew Luck is, he quit on, and it's just like, I, I was one of few Colts fans that I knew of, even in like my own family, which I think of as a progressive, that was just like, yeah, if he doesn't want to do this anymore, it's okay. Yeah. Do I love the timeline of how it went down? I, I guess not. Mm-hmm. But also when it's someone's life, do we really even get to weigh in on the timeline? Like, I don't know at what point he went to the Colts and said he was thinking this. Like, we don't really know any of that because it hasn't been disclosed to us because it's not really any of our fucking business. Yeah. Like, the the taxpayers do not pay Colts salaries. So if Jim Ursay is at peace with it and says he is, then I kind of have to be too. You know, like, I don't. The only stake I have in this is liking this man. And if I genuinely like this man, then I should be supportive of what he thinks is best for him in his life. Yeah, it's really weird to me anytime fans, because this is happening a lot with like Major League Baseball, or it was until they came to an agreement, but it was uh, people going like, oh, the players don't want to come back and play. Like, mm-hmm. it's the players' fault that they're not coming back and playing. I don't understand how people are so quick to side with management when they themselves almost certainly are labor in their jobs, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, we are seeing that same hypocrisy in people that are like, have always been like, I'm I'm making my own militia. And if something comes for me, I'm fighting back. And now they're siding with the government. It's like, what the fuck are you doing? Like, now you're on the government side and the police side? Like, you guys were supposed to be these anarchists, and you're not. You're, you're establishment. That's actually, you yeah. thought you were punk, and you're the anti-punk. And it's, yeah, it's the same thing of like, fuck rich people, and then being mad on the behalf of rich people. I think the sad reality is a lot of fandom is so blind and blind to the point where it makes you stupid. Um, And so, like, I I think about and talk a lot about, like, what it even means to be a feminist who is a sports fan. And and people will say that those are, like, in conflict with each other and not possible. And and I think it is possible because you really you have to put the pressure on yourself to be a conscious fan mm-hmm. so like when when reports come out that like a player did xyz and then you see people like what it's like you should know enough about who that person is to not be outraged like i i like to think that there's enough good athletes and and good organizations that you can support them or at least Find ones that line up with your beliefs, even if they're shitty, mm-hmm. and just go and support them. Like, I feel very, very lucky to be fan, a major fan of two teams that are owned by Democrats. And so I think their position has – I've been impressed by it, and it's been more impressive to me than most owners. But that's because my politics align to some extent mm-hmm. with them as well. 
but to just be like, I can't believe that fucking head coach said black lives matter. It's like, well, then I guess she didn't know anything about your head coach. Like, because yeah. that doesn't seem like a shock to me for someone to, I, I mean, the only person I've been shocked by is Richard Petty. And that's mm-hmm. just because he's old and, and was so against kneeling and, and feels like he really is against a lot of the things, but I don't know if it's a fact of he loves Bubba or he doesn't want to see racing um, end, which I I think if you're like a smart business owner, you kind of realize now if we're not embracing all people, we're not going to be around for that much longer. But I've been pleasantly surprised by him. But when people do or say hateful shit within the sports world, I do kind of like being like, oh, yeah, I already did not like that person. You know, like yeah. I knew that they were trash and they were not someone that I supported. The last time I got whoopsie daisied was um, I I got a Lance Stevenson Lakers jersey and was doing a show about liking Lance. I had a joke where I talked about liking Lance and then a girl came up to me afterwards and, and you know, told me a tough domestic violence story. And I was like kind of embarrassed that I felt like I got caught with my pants down. Like I yeah. was like, I should know better. I should do more research mm-hmm. and that sucks you know like researching athletes to find out if they're bad people is not fun research but if you want to be a fan it's kind of what you got to do now yeah i also think the other the other thing um this idea like there's this uh idea that these companies and so like uh richard petty racing or whatever is a company that's maybe bowing to this movement because it's profitable but that's kind of the way progress has always happened, right? Is like yeah. even yeah. even um like Lincoln's actual if you read like the things Lincoln actually said, not just like the the like the uh unredacted version or the redacted version that we see in our textbooks, but like he said some stuff that was like very he said that uh the reason he wanted to end slavery was because of economic inequality. And you're like, "Oh, does that mean that he wants black people to have Wages? No. He thinks it's unfair no. that white people or that uh, northern people can't yeah, own slaves. The South is, yeah. <clears throat> um, and and that brought about a really good change. Like, yeah, yeah. There are there are companies that are posturing for sure. You, we just have to be the ones to hold them accountable if they then also don't like walk the walk after it. Yeah, and if there's anyone to bring awareness to this change it's two white people like us. <laughs> if anyone's voice is need to be Casey. heard on this yeah i mean together <laughs> our name is basically karen um <laughs> we've got like all the letters but the r at this point i was actually so i'm wondering this uh, so I, I think about the outback bowl joke a lot because i think that uh you are similar to the person i knew off stage in the brief time that we were together on stage but i think that uh uh if i'm gonna i don't want to like uh boil your comedy down too far to be insulting once again but i think that you're the version of you that's on stage i don't think you play a character but i think it's like an exaggerated version of yourself without self-awareness so i think that's like the out because the outback bowl joke is a good example of this because you know sports very well right and Mm -hmm. you're like reducing it down to this like uh, superficial version of how uh, can I play the Outback Bowl joke on this podcast? Is anyone going to be mad Absolutely. at me? Absolutely, I would love for you to. Um, but I think it's like I. So 
I think that like on stage, maybe you uh, come off as slightly arrogant in some ways. Mm-hmm. And I'm mm-hmm. curious if you're worried that in two years when comedy is allowed to be done again, if all of this Karen stuff will uh, reduce the appetite of audiences for that. Because I know like as a... As oh. a... Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, no, it, it's... I mean, I think the cons- the number one concern like involving my act was sort of like oh i gotta assess the jokes that i'm telling and are they now still what i want to put out into Mm -hmm. the world given not even that like things have changed did i i just burped into the mic not even that things have changed but that we are now more aware Mm -hmm. of the you know inequalities and so yeah there's definitely Definitely jokes I did 10 years ago that I'm like, I don't want to, I don't do those anymore. I kind of, my act does tend to, uh, I don't, I don't do jokes for like a long period of time just cause mm-hmm. I get bored, I think. Um, and so a lot of what I've been talking about recently is my marriage and I am in an interracial marriage and I don't talk about you know i talk about our unborn child and how like excited people are to see this half asian child like that is something that is brought up to me a lot and there's obviously racial undertones to that even though they are positive like people are like your kid's gonna be so fucking hot you know that's still like a positive thing it is still (laughs) strange to comment on yeah um and so it's kind of like i i I don't want to I don't ever feel afraid of like my own cancellation that mm-hmm. it, you know like I think we're all going to be canceled to some extent and it and maybe the periods that were canceled will just be shorter like I'll be canceled for 15 minutes you'll be canceled for 10 minutes like that's just what's going to like that seems <laughs> instead like of 15 minutes of fame like, it's 15 minutes of cancellation done bad shit I've done and said bad shit in my life. Yeah. Um, and I try and not do it now, but I started addressing my whiteness like the first time I ever did stand up. Mm-hmm. Like it, I, as a, as a, the character I am on stage, the, there is a lack of self-awareness, but as a person, I feel like I'm very, very self-aware. I don't think you could and, have those two. Th- I don't think you could have the yeah. character that doesn't have self-awareness without understanding the ways that that character would yeah. be lack self-awareness, yeah. right? So I, I started like commenting on my own voice and how bad it is. You know, like I, I don't even want to say bad it is because we never criticize men's voices. But like I, I was truly I would like read my comments and be like, oh, my God, everyone hates my voice. Like I didn't know that that. And so it was kind of like taking the temperature. Like I have a joke where I. I was walking down the street and I got hit with a shovel by a workman and I was like very scared at first. And then he turned and when he saw me, he was scared because it's like, oh, yeah, I'm the enemy now. (laughs) And so I've been calling myself the enemy with a Fox News haircut um, for three years. Like I I knew I knew the rise of the Karen because I am. A Karen. Mm-hmm. I, I'm a Hannah, I guess, but I What's grew up with Karen. I, I, I've shared 
whole i was in a sorority so it's like you you're not gonna tell me white people are racist and have me go no oh no we are not like i've been i have seen it my whole life i'm from indiana so like in some ways i'd like to hope that i'm ahead of that i've been ahead of that curve but the adjustment is me trying to now create comedy that feels like it is representative of the current climate and also positive yeah and that is a challenge yeah i think that's uh i like where i have a an issue like um philosophically is when we go back 15 years to something that was like this was considered acceptable comedy by people who we know to be like tolerant people uh like Sarah Silverman, for example, has the blackface sketch. We know Sarah Silverman is like an advocate for all, but it's like the there's like a massive hypocrisy where it's like if you you could be less self righteous, right? Be a little like allow people the opportunity, like you're saying, to change the to like evaluate what's going on. We're all going to react to this circumstance in some way. I have jokes where I'm like, you know the punchline kind of leans into the idea that uh, like the character that I play on stage would be like this ignorant person say, is that punchline worth it? Right. Mm -hmm. Is that, it's not a huge part of the joke. I don't have to abandon the whole joke, but I have to put in that one tag. Uh, Mm -hmm. I had a a clip that got picked up and it's got, it says, uh, it talks about how we had a baby. And then I say, uh, we gave her up for adoption. We sold her. Do you know how much you can get for a white baby these days? So that's like a, that's like a kind of innocent joke, but I'm like, oh, does that mean that I'm saying that a white baby's worth more? Like, obviously I'm not saying that, but is that, that's a perception that I'm playing off of, right? Is like that a white baby, they, if a white, if a white child goes missing, they look for them longer. Like white lives historically have been valued. Yeah, there's that classic um, Patrice joke that's like, yeah, if you're about, if you're a black person, you're about to get on a boat, strap a white baby to you. They will, (laughs) you know, they will search like. Uh, you have not said that white babies are valued more. Right. Society has said that, and you are commenting on that. Yeah. But, yeah, it's like we all have to go through and assess, like, what 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 message do we want to be putting out there right now? Right. And, and a lot of times, and for me this is true, the easiest joke has been the – has been – the the like slightly commentary on racism you know right. like it, it may even just be harder for us to then go yeah there's uh, there's other punchlines there's it, it, i hope that it will help us become better comedians mm-hmm. but it's definitely gonna be harder and that you know and that's good that yeah. it, it it should be we've had it as easy as possible yeah that yeah maybe we just have to think of two extra punchlines but yeah i'm having i'm going through and assessing all the material i have about my husband i called him a hip-hop filipino on tv and it's like i hope that's and like i've had filipino people tag me in it like there i i have not there has not been a filipino filipino person who's reached out to me and said that they were offended Mm -hmm. but that may exist and i would feel really bad I have a uh, nine-minute story about going to Atlanta uh, and visiting my, be- my one of my really good friends from uh, like all through school was a black guy moved to Atlanta. 
like very different people, but share like this weird, uh, by the way, he would not like me saying this, but like a spiritual connection. Uh, <clears throat> so I went and visited him in Atlanta. I was like the, th- the second white guy that ever stepped foot in his house in Atlanta. I had a blast in Atlanta and then I have one joke in the whole nine minutes that I'm like, like there's stuff in there that people kind of like step back, like, you know, like back off of. And then there's, that's like mm-hmm. builds the tension or whatever. There's one joke that I, uh, I feel like is the least defensible, but it's also the joke mm-hmm. where you're like, oh, this story is actually true. You know, like, so I think like a hip hop Filipino, probably there's a bunch of Filipinos that know exactly the guy you're talking about. Yes. And yes. I, and like, and that is, he, he is, this is how I would describe my husband. Mm-hmm. And it, that's the thing is like, if the group of people who you're talking about is not offended by it, then why shouldn't you be allowed to tell it? Why, you know, why, why is that a, even like a, like to, and like capital P or lowercase p problematic punchline. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, and there is, I knew this before I married an Asian person, but I, I know it even more now and I'm also guilty of it, of like, there is this thing in our culture where making fun of Asian people is kind of the most accepted form mm-hmm. of racism in some ways because we're like they're smart they're good at math they have lex like i i think there's a case people could make to be like well we're punching up they're doing better than us but it's like yes but it is also racist to yeah. be commenting on on an entire like group of people just based on how they look and damn now i'm gonna have a kid who is also gonna be asian and that's fuck, i know i've done some for sure racist shit and said some racist shit about asian people in my life and now i'm going to be the mother of an of an asian person yeah um and that is crazy yeah i mean i guess like again i just think like you know probably don't show the kid the material when he's four he or she is four uh but I think that, like, I don't know. I mean, comedy's comedy, too. Like, I have a I have a black uncle that lived with us. And, like, my mom showed me blazing saddles while he lived with us. Like, the he's get, your, your child's going to be a person that's going to understand your oh, job. Oh, and I'm right? not going to be racist. I am not going to be racist to my child. I <laughs> um, but, I, but I cannot guarantee I won't be racist behind my child's back. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you said a thing to me, I'm gonna, I'm, I, you've given me a lot of your time and I appreciate it. You said a thing to me about, uh, being a woman in comedy that I've remembered and repeated to people, um, because I had never thought of it this way because we were talking about, uh, how it's harder to be a woman. And I at my level, I think, uh, in the getting booked part of comedy, which isn't the only bad part of comedy, I think it is better to be a woman at my level and you mm-hmm. said to me that you think it's easier to become an MC or a feature as a woman uh, by a little bit, but it's much, much harder to become a headliner as a woman. And I've seen uh, like interviews about like Hannibal Burris, right? He's a, a black guy that does comedy that's not really traditional, like what we would consider traditional black guy comedy. And so he would be on posters and white audiences would go, oh, that's a black guy. That's not for me. 
And then black audiences would come and go, what the fuck is this? Because he's like this, Mm -hmm. you know, like low energy, esoteric guy. Mm -hmm. Do you like, I mean, I assume you still stand by that. Has it gotten any better since you told me that for you? Are you selling tickets? So, and, (laughs) and, and part of it is I, I've like learned this. I think you could have two posters side by side, same exact credits. One is a woman, one is a man and people are more willing to go see a man. They don't know do stand up than they are to go see a woman. They don't know do stand up. Mm -hmm. And that is, I think men, women, children, that's just kind of a baked in prejudice that we have as, you know, women are not funny. And so some of it, it's harder for us to become headliners because we don't sell tickets. You know, you got to be famous to sell tickets. And I am a not famous woman that I've, I've, you know, been on television and you have a lot of examples of my comedy that you could see and decide if you like me, but there's just people that are going to see me and go, Nope. And, and there's also, are there, are there people that are going to see me and go, Ooh, okay. Yes. But is like, are the, are the men that whistle when you come on stage really what you want an entire audience to be like, no, you would so much rather. I mean, I feel like I go places and there's a lot of younger women, gay men. Like I love going to just like the middle of nowhere in Wisconsin and five gay men come see me and they're like, we heard you on. And I'm like, yeah, great. This is like that. That's how you build um, a fan base is Mm -hmm. hoping they hear you and then come see you and like it. But yeah, it's very, very hard to be a not famous woman and get booked at, at these places. Comedy is not news, but Casey is going to talk about it like it is news. I hope you enjoyed Megan Gailey. She's one of my favorites. She's hilarious. Check out her album. My dad paid for this. It's so fucking funny. The material is so good. She's so good. She's such a nice person. And uh, I feel very lucky to have had her on the podcast certainly an influence uh i tweeted this the other day uh go check out megan's twitter by the way at megan gailey she posted um a story about who the or about a, a situation a bad situation where she was working with a comic who was treating her like shit um and i don't want to try to try to retell her story go check it out on her twitter but it reminded me just of how cool she was to me and the MC the weekend that I opened for her. And I think about it all the time. Every time I meet a new comic, I think about it and I trust me, I'm not nice to every new comic, (laughs) but I do think about it. I just think I, all the stuff that people do that's cool to you in comedy, it means so much because it's so, it's such a, the only people you get feedback from on a regular basis are the people who have zero power over whether or not you advance. I mean, in at least close to zero power, like doing well for an audience is great. If nobody that books a show or that runs a festival or whatever is there to see it, then it has limited value. It's ultimately what you have to do, but it's not the only thing that you have to do or that you need 
to advance in comedy and uh or even to feel good about comedy to be honest with you and may after working with megan for the first uh first time or the only time uh i felt so good about comedy there are like these in comedy like in life there are these like life plateaus that you reach i can remember them uh pretty distinctly i remember i did a an open mic that i did really well on and this well-known comic named jenny zagrino was there and told me that I was great. And I was like, oh my God, like this is, uh, this made it feel worth it. I did a show where I did like 10 minutes, um, in front of like a non club crowd and did like really well. And I got paid $40 unexpectedly, which is always good. And, uh, that was great. I had another show where I did a guest spot on a show where the guest spot can be really difficult. Again, did really well. Got paid forty bucks for that, which you did, you never expect for a guest spot. Um, I talk about it with Megan. I don't again. Don't know if it's gonna make the podcast. I don't know if it did make the podcast because we're uh, after, but uh, after that you'll have listened to the interview. But when I worked with Ron Funches at Spokane Comedy Club, I had a feeling that Spokane Comedy Club was gonna ask me to feature, and I was right because I had a very good set. I had very good sets all weekend. MCing for Ron Funches and another really funny comic, uh, Gabe Dinger. And then, yeah, those like feature weekends where you're like, and even like financial stuff. Like I started selling merch the weekend that Megan Gailey, uh, headlined at Spokane comedy club and made like an extra, like 600 bucks, which is like, Oh, comedy can make you money. I found out that weekend because like without merch sales by the way if you're out there uh if you're watching shows if you're watching comedians on shows a lot of us especially people who aren't headlining frequently most i will say this like half the money i make in comedy is from selling shirts and so even if you're not gonna wear it like it means so much to comedians to to buy their merch, buy their album. If you yeah, yes, you can go buy a comedian's album on Spotify, but if you have 10 extra dollars, buy their album in person from them. Because when it goes through Spotify, they need like, you know, 10,000 listens to make a dollar. I don't know if that's true, but they need a lot of listens to make to make $1. If you buy it on Amazon, it's like you buy it for 10 bucks, they probably get 6 bucks out of that deal. But if you buy it in person, they're probably getting nine of those $10. So I want to talk about Seth Simons, who is, he's a blogger, a comedy blogger, who, he, if you don't know who he is, he's the guy that uh, outed, who published and and popularized Shane Gillis's video that got him fired from SNL, uh, the podcast video. And he's, you know, been critical of comedy. I don't I don't want to get into trashing this guy specifically. He actually, crazy enough, included a tweet of mine in an article about there was a comic, an LA comic, who cited a database which i'm like a big data guy you can't 
the intersection of comedy and data. I'm not going to let you misinterpret that. <laughs> I can't, I can't do that. So, uh, he posted about how club comedy is a, um, bastion for white supremacy and misogyny and cited a database created by Maria Bamford. That's a really cool database, by the way, if I remember, which I probably won't, but Google like Maria Bamford comedy club database. Cause it, it looks at the, uh, there's like some, some people were doing like some reporting and, um, it is a record of the race and gender of all of the comedians performing on the show shows at like, I think it's like 65 comedy clubs for, I think three months. <clears throat> and what, what the data showed actually is that black men are overrepresented in comedy. Black people are 13% of the population. Um, and even like probably a little bit higher in metropolitan areas where comedy's hotter and where, <clears throat> where comedy clubs maybe would, uh, would gravitate towards. So then roughly half of those black people are men. Are they represented, uh, black men represented 20% of headliners and 20% of comedians. So, like, I think he's making a really good point, this guy, that, like, I, I mean, I think that you start throwing out words that, you throw out words that have no, you can't accept them without, like, you you can't accept guilt in that regard without a death sentence in comedy. You can't say that I've been misogynistic um, or racist. Like Neil Brennan, even Neil Brennan posted a thing about how he's, how we're all racist and he's racist. And I like the sentiment I agree with. Um, I think that the problem is, is that the penalty is so strict that people have a hard time acknowledging it. So anyways, he Seth Simons quoted me on that. The point is long, uh, he's, I think he quoted me and I disagree with his point. Then he did a podcast that I listened to. And he talked about how he got death threats for some of the... He's got many death threats for some of the articles he's written, which I, I can't confirm that he did or did not get them, but I actually sent him a DM and said, hey, uh, I disagree with you on a lot of things, but you don't deserve death threats. And, you know, he had like a decent exchange. But then he got... So he is in this ecosystem of comedy... Uh, he is one of the people who is advocating for this kind of like online justice. Don't wait for something like, um, objective or even a rebuttal from a person to, to take their career away. And uh, over the weekend, he got 
outed as a sex pest, which I don't even know what that means. Let's look up what a sex pest is because a sex pest is, oh boy, Urban Dictionary, the only dictionary worth reading. A man who gives a woman unwanted sexual attention. For instance, pulling women's thongs, staring down their tops, telling them lewd jokes. Okay, so I don't know if it's true or not. Um, But you can imagine that the other side of comedy, the, the uh, free speech side of comedy, I guess you'd call it, they had a they had a field day with Seth Simons. And I think we should clarify one thing. The best news in all of this would be if Seth Simons was not guilty of this. I remember a couple of years ago, uh Colin Kaepernick was there was like a brief accusation that Colin Kaepernick was like involved in a sexual assault. And I remember Seahawks fans being thrilled. And I, I'm on like a message board or a Facebook thread or something like that. And I go, listen, this isn't good news. You can't be happy that this happened. And they go, sure we are. Uh, Colin Kaepernick might not play next year. That's great news. And it's like, no, it's it's still a human being. The best news would be if this woman was not sexually assaulted, obviously. I would think, obviously, I hope Seth Simons is not, did not, is not a sex pest, did not hurt somebody sexually, uh, either emotionally or physically. I, I don't know. I, I don't, there's not a lot of details available regardless. I hope there, I hope it's not true because I wouldn't want to have a woman go through that for like my shitty comedy opinion to be validated in some way. I do think, though, Seth Simons aside, that it is important to look at with skepticism the unexpected source of vitriol in these situations. When you see uh, like a random apolitical white dude suddenly become like enthralled with the Black Lives Matter movement out of nowhere, you kind of have to wonder... Is he really inspired or is he atoning for some past guilt? Because, and, and by the way, if you are inspired, keep it up. Like, I know a dude that started tweeting about this in June. Talking about how it's his movement, our movement, we, blah, 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 blah. He's done tweeting about it. Nothing's fixed. Nothing's solved the contributing factors to inequality between black people and white people and native American people and white people, they still exist. The effects still exist. Why did you stop tweeting? Because it's not sexy anymore. You get less retweets. It was all about his ego the whole time. There's people that, that vacation in activism. And if you're going to vacation in activism, just donate fucking money. If you're trying to atone for a past sin of your own, just donate fucking money because you're going to invalidate you being a hypocrite 
is going to invalidate a movement that you're pretending to care about. Just donate your fucking money. At least your money sticks. At least your money has an objective method of helping. Just donate your fucking money. Seth Simons, uh, again, hope he didn't do it. I don't even want him to be canceled. But this is the, the standard that he has helped set. He's not the only guy out there that said it, but he helped set it. So I understand. This is the, it's that, uh, was it, I think it's called like when they came for, I'm going to read a poem. When they came for, it's called, sorry, first they came. And it goes, I think there's multiple versions of it, but it goes, uh, first they came for the socialists and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists and I did not speak out because I, I am, I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me and there was no one left to speak for me. And this is basically why I think this is like the good argument for free speech is historically our government and our justice system and our society haven't been perfect agents of deciding what is and is not acceptable speech. So historically we've like pro gay stuff, pro trans stuff has been suppressed because it was considered offensive or inappropriate or vulgar in some way that was wrong. We needed free speech to reach the point we're at today. We need a lot of other things too, by the way, but we needed free expression, freedom of expression. And that's like when, when the sensitivity shifts to something that you care about, that you don't find offensive, who's going to be there to fight for you, but the free speech guys that you've shit on. I think every podcast right now is about free speech. Every comedy podcast is about free speech or problematic men. All right. Nobody would mistake KC for an athlete, but here he is again talking about sports. In sports, the Cleveland Indians and Washington football team, which is, by the way, how they've been referring to the team, the Washington uh, Redskins, that's how people have been referring to them for several years. It's funny to me that we make this... uh, because Indians isn't the name anymore. Redskins was never the name. That's a very offensive name. But Indians isn't. We've decided Native American is the name. And But people will say that. Uh, both those teams are considering a name change, which would be great. I think uh, the Redskins could easily become like the Red Hawks or the Red Tails is what I've seen. That makes a lot of sense. It would... Um, I think most their... Uh, most of their marketing would be fine. 
the the thing that's interesting this is like a really again like this is the same kind of deal as nascar getting rid of the confederate flag because it's such a it's been a this isn't like the first time this has been a topic but it's been the first time that the league or the organization has acknowledged that this is a problem i've only ever heard redskins owner wash or uh, daniel daniel snyder defend the name in fact, he said this thing that is the stupidest thing I've ever heard someone say about something like this, I think, which is, he goes, we polled Native Americans, and 90% of Native Americans do not find the name offensive. So, like, polling aside, take whatever the validity of the polling is, how many people find the name 49ers offensive? Or the name Seahawks offensive? what percentage of people find the name saints offensive probably by the way saints probably not zero because that's a religious thing the chargers how many people find the chargers offensive I mean, the chargers themselves a little bit offensive but the the name the fact that 10 percent of the people you pulled that you probably cooked the books on by the way you probably picked a majority of them to be uh, Washington fans and still 10% are offended by the name of your team. And that's how you defend your team. Let's change all the names, all the Native American names. Yeah, let's change them. And I think that like, I, don't, I mean, like the fighting, I mean, people are like, oh, is that going to mean we have to change the fighting Irish? I mean, okay. What the fuck do I care? Change the fighting Irish. Who gives a shit? I wonder, though, is it like the Cowboys? If the Cowboys, uh, at least by my play yard, play, uh, playground games, as I understand them, the Cowboys fought the Native Americans. At least how I understand every John Wayne and Clint Eastwood movie, the Cowboys fought the Native Americans. When, when do we change that team's name? But change, I mean, at the minimum, the Chiefs extended Patrick Mahomes, which is big news. He got uh, $450 million. Incentives could make it $503 million. Landmark quarterback contract. All I can think about is how the fuck come the Chiefs aren't under the same scrutiny? They got to change that name too, I guess. <clears throat> What would be the reason? Chief isn't like uh, specifically a name. It's like a, a rank. It'd be like the colonels, right? Still, I think it's rough. If you go, uh, if you're on YouTube, check out Andrew Schultz has done some stuff about the like white people activism around race and how silly it is, how... They're changing uh, the name of master bedrooms and master bathrooms to not offend black people. But they're doing nothing to narrow the wealth gap. Or, like, stop arresting them at disproportionate rates. Make it so they can afford a house with a master bedroom and master bathroom. What are you doing, Texas? I mean, I guess whatever. It's like a... It's uh, it's the realtors. It's not the entire state of Texas, but 
Uh, and then I've never felt more like a professional athlete than there are so many players right now because of COVID-19 that are opting out of the seasons that they they would be playing, opting out of the baseball season. Felix Hernandez, by the way, <clears throat> Mariners fans will get to delay the pain of watching him pitch for the Atlanta Braves. You almost have to believe that Felix Hernandez is done because... I mean, his career was hanging on by a thread anyway, and this is not good news. He's he's opting out of the 2020 season. Um, I do wonder how good that's going to be for his arm. I saw today he's played 15 years. Maybe this would have been his 15th season. How old am I? Felix is two months older than I am. Yeah, I think 15. I think he's played 15 years. 15 years with the Mariners. Pitched a lot of innings in most of those years. Is a year off? Could that be some sort of magic uh, treatment for his arm? Not magic, right? It's just rest. It's the opportunity to not throw 200 innings and strength train and all that. Maybe. But I've never felt more like a professional athlete than deciding, like, all that work? Hmm. Not really worth it. Casey doesn't even have a college degree, but he thinks that this podcast is his opportunity to talk about serious news. At the beginning of the quarantine, John Krasinski, who played Jim from The Office, and what is the guy, Jack Ryan? I don't know what that is, by the way. I don't know what Jack, I thought Jack Ryan, I thought that was the 24 guy. Who's he? Uh, John Krasinski created this thing called like the Some Good News show on YouTube, this like low production thing on YouTube, and then it got purchased by CBS. I don't give a shit about that at all. But I do think that in these times where there is a valid racial protest going on and a global pandemic and uh, economic crisis that there is limited value to good news to opting to see the good in things there is limited value you're not doing anyone any favors I always see this Whenever there's COVID news about new cases, it'll be like there's uh, 10,000 new cases and inevitably some asshole will respond, well, how many, how many negative tests? How come you don't say how many negative tests? The reason is because if what you think is that the negative tests will make you feel better, you're less likely to put on your mask. You're less likely to socially distance. You're less likely to limit your trips to the grocery store and to wash your hands and to hand sanitize and to cross the street when you see an old lady walking down the street. The less likely you are to not have 45 people over for the 4th of July, which, by the way, a friend of mine who lives far away did. Good news is for the weak. If you hear that there's 
things aren't so bad in this way for minorities in this country. You're shifting your focus away from the real story. If you hear that the economic crisis isn't so bad for certain people, and that somehow gives you joy, you're doing this to escape the problem. You are weak. And by the way, you don't have to always be strong. You can acknowledge that you are, but this is not the time for you to insist on hearing good news and insist on everybody acknowledging the good news. The adults are at the table right now talking about the real shit. If you need to go to the kids' table, go to the kids' table, but don't leave the kids' table. Don't force the kids' table discussion onto the adults' table because there's real shit to talk about and... Good news right now. Good news is for the week. Give me data. Give me science. Give me sociology. Is that the right thing? I don't know. I hope sociology is the right thing. But don't give me good news. I don't need good news just to make me feel better. Just to make me. Yeah, you shouldn't be sleeping well at night because we're in the middle of a fucking three crises at the same time. Why would you be sleeping well? Yeah, break away. That's fine. Put your fucking phone down. Stop taking in the news. It's not my problem that you can't handle it, though. The news sucks. It's bad news right now. All day, every day. A couple years ago, I remember uh, I used to listen to this podcast called Keeping It 1600 with John Favreau, who's now the host of Pod. Pod Save America? Pod Save America. And he, uh, it was a pretty good podcast. And then right around the election, he started doing this victory lap about how he's like, you're going to wake up tomorrow. We're going to wake up in a couple days and Hillary Clinton's going to be president. And the only thing that could have possibly done to change anything is to suppress voter turnout, to decrease voter turnout. I'm not saying that John Favreau is, and not the movie director one, by the way, if that's what you're wondering. Uh, I'm not saying that he is some diabolical mastermind. I'm saying he fucked up. <laughs> like a lot of left-wing pundits fucked up. And they took their foot off the gas. And it took like less than 60,000 votes in swing states to get Donald Trump elected. That's the the amount of people that vote are like it's like a hundred million people. If you shifted, if if and it's not just John Favreau, obviously it's everybody besides five thirty eight. The only people it's the goddamn data and science people who were saying that Trump had a real chance to win, and they were right. Listen to the data and science people, not the people who and I'm again not saying he's some political mastermind. But there is no doubt that John Favreau has prospered as a result of Donald Trump being elected. Thank God, Casey is almost done talking.
All right, thank you for listening to the podcast. Uh, check out the Patreon full-length interview with Megan Gailey on there. Uh, very fun. I don't think I will have included it, but there is a great story about her, me, and the MC all getting food poisoning from sushi in Spokane, Washington. So if that's attractive to you, go check it out. It's five bucks a month for the Patreon. Full-length interviews, video of the interview, and uh, the podcast ad-free and theoretically a day early, um, earlier than you get it on the regular feed. Uh, thank you for listening. Follow me at the Casey McLean. Follow Megan Gailey at Megan Gailey, and I will talk to you next week. Thank you.